right, everybody. Uh, hello. Uh, welcome uh, to the uh, dis uh, February 28th, 2019 QPSC. Uh, just to remind everyone of convention, this committee's convention is to move directly into closed session after roll call. And then to further remind those in the audience, not a very big audience today, closed shut session is used for confidential matters related to medical staff, credentialing, accreditation, and risk. Therefore, if you're not involved in one of these discussions, we ask you to rejoin us uh, when we go to open session at 3 o'clock. So with that, uh, we will move to roll call. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. It's not here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Charland is not here today. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jensen. Here. All right, we have a quorum. Thank you. With that, we will move into closed session. All right. Um, everybody, welcome to the February 28th, 2019 QPSC. Uh, we have just completed closed session. I will remind everyone to please use your microphone. Uh, and uh, I guess uh, in further pursuit of our, our playbook, uh, our trustees will strive to reserve questions till the completion of the report. Use your pens, ask your questions. For our presenters, remember we strive uh, for 25% presentation, 75% dialogue. That's what we're striving for. I'll help to move us along. With that, we will move into uh, item B, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda? I move. Second. Second. Um, uh, I'll open it up for dialogue. Any dialogue on the consent agenda? Um, just to remind everyone, uh, with, with regard to item B1, on page 10 from the Human Rights Clinic, there is a sentence that says, they recently got a pedestrian on board. That should be, they recently got a pediatrician on board. Uh, I do read. Um, uh, with regard to item B2, there are four system policies, one Highland policy, three Alameda hospital policies. Uh, thank you to uh, all the teams. We're, we're making standard work of including the policy flow diagram to always continuously remind yourself. So that's a great piece of work. I'm glad that that's paying off. Any discussion on the P and P's from the from the board? No, um, I, I did have a question on the um, workplace violence. Is that a system-wide policy now, or is this specific to uh, the Highland? It's a system-wide, okay. It's a system-wide policy. Excellent. Thanks. Any other questions with regard to PNP, policies and procedures? No. Item B3 was the recommendation for the board to, uh, for approval of a proposed addition of Article 9 to the Alameda Hospital Med Staff Rules and Regs. This uh, uh, began on page 84 of the packet. Uh, I'll first ask the, the trustees if they have any questions. I'll, I'll, I'll defer answering of these questions to Dr. Marzouk. Where's Dr. Marzouk, uh, who is the Chief of Staff for Alameda Hospital? Uh, trustees, any questions with regard to item B3? And this is Article 9. There was a typo, which was corrected. It said Article 4. It's actually Article 9. Mm -hmm. This is the bylaw. This is for the rules and regs. Wait. Article 9 to the Alameda Hospital Medical Staff Rules and Regs. What page is that? It begins on page 84. 84. Or if you click on the tab, it's 3. It's B3. Oh, you use the tab. Oh, okay. Do that. That's smarter. Got it. 
No, I do not have anything on this. Any commentary or questions? Dr. Marzuk's not here. Uh, but he'll return any case that passes. So if no, bearing no further dialogue on uh, item B, consent agenda, um, all in favor of approving? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? Item B carries. Uh, that takes us into item C. Yeah, Mr. before you get there, we should just note for the record that during the session, Trustee Banerjee joined us. So, uh, Yes, Hello. Trustee Banerjee joined us during closed session for the mic. Um, thank you, Council. So with that, we will move into item C. Uh, this is the chair's report. Uh, in continuation of our, of our journal club, I've included two things. Uh, I'll start with number two, which was the never events. Trustee Hernandez asked me for these, uh, and I wanted to put them in our official record, so they are now part of our record. I think it's something that, uh, uh, that we should always have view on. Uh, it, I think it will help contextualize our, 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 our improving uh, uh, quality evaluation within our system. And uh, I'd wonder, and not asking the quality committee, but at a future state, maybe a never happen event uh, uh, count should, should, should be considered. Not asking for it now, that's a dialogue for us to have at later. Item, uh, article one was called, was from the Harvard Business Review, and it's, it was entitled One Way to Prevent Clinician Burnout. And um, I, I, I included this uh, because the context of, of one discussion later today is going to be on that physician wellness. Physician wellness is, is a thing that we've been talking through again and again and again, and it's funny. Uh, the first statement of the article, it says, sometimes the endless discussion about burnout in healthcare creates its own form of burnout <laughs> and, and uh, a sense of hopelessness about being able to stop an epidemic. So I, I hope this article perhaps provides a primer into actually ways to view this rather than, oh, everyone's not doing well, uh, and, and to contextualize this, and I, I, I think it would be ver a very nice adjunct, if you will, to Dr. Hearn's uh, presentation uh, later today. Later today. <clears throat> so, uh, that... Uh, so with that, I'll just open it up to dialogue from the committee, uh, if any comments. Otherwise, we can move along. Dr. Hearn, that includes you. You can say something if you like. <laughs> You're going to be talking about it. I'll say my comments first. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Chiefs of Staff. Important topic. I think we all agree. Dr. J. I think it's uh, it's a good article. It gives uh, a little bit of a different perspective in the medical literature, which is all about this. Uh, so thank you for bringing it to attention. Uh, I mean, I can talk about physician burnout until tomorrow morning. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, so um, like about you know being able to assess and see the inherent and the external and what is within our control, what's not, how disengagement and other things add to it. So it's not throughput and things. All of that is like engagement, and it's just so many complex factors. Yeah. So um, yeah, looking forward to hearing. Yeah, like any problem, when you break it down into component parts, it makes it a little bit more digestible. Mm -hmm. Like, a, you know, a hospital flow problem, we can break it down into its 35 component parts, whatever. It makes it a little bit more digestible rather than just a paralyzing problem. 
So with that, uh, we are ahead of time. Wow. We will end item C, the QPSC chair, and we'll move into item D, uh, the medical staff reports. Uh, now, uh, trying to be a good time manager, 35 minutes has been allocated to this, so that's roughly around uh, 12, 13 minutes per chief of staff. We're, we're about 15 minutes ahead of time, so I'm going to give each of you guys about 15 minutes, up to 15 minutes if you need it. Um, we've read your reports, um, and uh, we'll uh, let you entertain whatever you want to discuss with us. Um, how about Dr. Ballard coming out of the gates? Thank you. Uh, we respectfully submit, as uh, we said earlier, credentialing. We had no reports uh, in terms of our professional services and contracting this past time. In terms of quality outcomes, um, I think our, our last med staff meeting, we tackled a few very important and big topics that uh, continue to challenge us on a day in and day out basis. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Hussein's group has done a marvelous job of sort of turning the ship of quality into a direction that's not headed for an iceberg. And um, we might actually make it to port eventually at this rate. He, um, in addition to his very eloquent dashboard, he was able to share several vignettes which touched me deeply about patients he had cared for covering the inpatient service. And I think that added just that extra important influence for us as clinicians to understand why quality is so important. So I think, you know, he's a keeper. <laughs> and um, the fact that he could show a dashboard and still pull heartstrings at the same time, I've never seen anybody do that. So um, that, that in itself set the meeting off to a great start. We've been challenged, I think, beyond any belief that we ever had we could be challenged on our surge process. And ironically, the term surge came from originally from work that I was doing with the mass casualty unit uh, early on, and then the actual surge team that exists now stole our term, so we had to come up with a new name for ourselves. <laughs> But the, the mindset behind the whole surge process and the reason that it was easy, easy to steal was because we based all of this on the MEDOC score, because Dr. Jocelyn Garrett Freeman is my colleague in the mass casualty response team world. And she brought MEDOCs to the table very early and said, Kelly, how are we going to take 50 new patients when we have no beds available? We've got to fix the surge so we can be prepared. And so it all trickled out to um, our current surge effort, which is an enormous undertaking. And Dr. Tornabeno actually distilled all that into some beautiful slides of the work that's been done so far, and I believe um, sort of set the stage for the vast amount of work that's yet to be done. And I think it's pretty fascinating, as I was saying in a different form recently, in that you know, historically, this hospital and every hospital is, I think, been plagued with the silo mentality. We all get in our departments, we kind of put our shoulders to the grindstone and take care of our patients, and we stop remembering we're part of a very large organic whole. And one of the things I've learned in the last few years is I've studied more and more about disaster medicine, and I've talked to people who are disaster specialists, is that you can't really think of a hospital that way when you're talking about flexing up 
and being able to take care of a mass number of people at once. And there's some beautiful work that's coming out of Hopkins right now that looks at a hospital as an entire organism and how all the parts of the hospital have to be able to work together like cogs in a machine for us to handle that kind of influx. And so I'm super excited that we have the, I'll call it embryonic process of starting to deal with surge so that when that thing does happen, and it will, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, that we're able to flex up and take care of all the people that are going to need our help despite what is going on in the ER on that particular day. So I think we're, we're well on our way and there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I would ask for continued support from the board in that, you know, it may take FTEs, it may, it may take more time, it may take funding of different sorts, but we've got people that are intelligent enough and coordinated enough to actually make this work and I hope we can in the next three to five years not have that conversation anymore. Sapphire, I think, is getting so close that we're all starting to tremble over it. And um, there are colleagues in every single department that are now becoming, um, and I'm going to use the wrong word, trainers, train the trainers, and what's the other? Super users. Super users. So, you know, I'm thinking of Capes and things. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I hear that, but our small department of eight people is tapping into at least two people to do that, and the larger departments are needing to go, you know, into the double digits for people to do these tasks. In addition to and on top of their clinical duties, and it once again humbles me that we have people that are willing to work that hard to make this place a better place to be in general and a better place for patients, because we already work more than. I think most of us think we ever would. So Sapphire is going to happen in September, and um, we're anxious about it. I'll be perfectly honest. So if I get grumpy around August, that's why. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I think we're on target. We've got people that are energized and ready to do the work, and I'm just I'm looking forward to it. Last but not least. Um, Dr. Ingenio and I have been having many, many email conversations and um, working on coming to a solution for the San Leandro merger with Hiram AHS core facilities that will be upcoming in the next several months. I think we, we all have um, issues that we want to balance in terms of our respective MECs and our positions in terms of what that future state will look like. Recently, I went to um, me and Dr. Hearn and Dr. Victorina were able to go down to San Leandro and sit at a table, which in my opinion is always the best way to try to solve problems, is face to face. And um, we were able to have a dialogue with the folks at San Leandro. Uh, in response to that, Dr. Eugenia is going to come and speak to our med exec uh, in March and allow that dialogue to happen on our side of the, the 580. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, by these discussions, we can come up with a, a solution that everyone feels like they've gotten some of the things they need and maybe had to give a few of the things they thought they needed. But I'm truly encouraged that the amount of energy and time that people are putting into showing up and having the discussions will result in a, a positive outcome for everyone involved come next January.
And that ends my report, I believe. Thank you for your report, Thank Dr. You. Ballard. Trustees, questions for Dr. Ballard? Good. Uh, Dr. Ballard, and for all those who attend, you know I try to strive for standard work, so my standard work question for anyone who presents is, uh, can you please rank order, rank order your top current concerns? And I'll remind you what you said last time. Uh, you rank ordered number one as Surge Red, number two as Provider Wellness, and number three as Epic. That's what you gave at your last report. Any change in that order from your perspective? I would say number one now is the San Leandro Alameda core okay. um, negotiations. Okay. And I would say number two is probably still Surge Red. Okay. And number three is Wellness because we're all stressed and we need to be well. So number one, the merger. Number two, the code red surge. Number three, provider wellness. And then my other standard question is, do you feel resourced to navigate these challenges? We can always use more help. Um, I that believe. A yes or a no? Uh, it's mm -hmm. a maybe. Okay. <laughs> and I think, you know, I have had pleasant experience with um, people who really didn't need to take the time, both at the board level and across the staff and the executive suite taking five minutes to just hear me sometimes cry, sometimes rant, sometimes just say I don't understand what's going on and they put energy in the supporting from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. So that's where the positive part of the maybe goes. Okay, got it. And uh, remember, I'll remind everyone what I said last time, that, that question is code word for what do you need from this board to help you. Okay. So uh, trustees, no further questions for Dr. Ballard? Uh, thank you, Dr. Ballard. Next, we'll go to Dr. Ingenue from San Leandro Hospital, uh, the chief of staff there, and we'll open up for his report, uh, which is in the packet beginning on page 100. Dr. Ingenue, thank you. You're welcome. Um, you'll see the credential and privileges, which we discussed. Professional services and contracting um, had a few issues. There's still some providers that are having trouble with access for the community patients because of contractual insurance reasons, which I think is hurting the system uh, by not being able to do those patients <coughs> at San Leandro Hospital, and hopefully those will be resolved, I hope, soon, because it does impact the elective surgical volume, which can be financially beneficial to the system. Um, the uh, anesthesia services, we actually had a meeting, uh, the chief of surgery, myself, with Dr. Newmark and one other anesthesiologist, and they uh, appear capable and enthusiastic to work on the transition for anesthesia services at, at the hospital, which I think is encouraging and great. We've, uh, if you can see, some of the um, initial appointments are actually anesthesiologists. The majority of them are who are going to start working in a slow transition. That may have to be stepped up a little bit, and maybe Dr. J can comment a little bit, because I think the anesthesia group that's currently doing it has is soon losing yet another provider, um, but hopefully this will not have any impact on our surgical volumes. So we're encouraged there. Uh, the quality measures were on the dashboard there. You can see those. I think um, the uh, there are a couple emergency department metrics, which I'll get to in a minute, which are concerning. Um, but overall, reasonable. reasonable. The, um, the one thing that was brought up at our MEC, which is quite concerning, because a number of our members have been involved in the EPIC transitions in the mm -hmm. past, 
um, from other facilities um, is, and this was brought up, the concern for appropriate nursing staffing. Um, I think there is an inordinate, my personal perception, that there is an inordinate number of nurses, perhaps on the nursing staff at San Leandro, that may not be as computer savvy as some other medical staff, some nursing staff. And, and I encourage uh, Mr. Fonseca and the entire board to strongly consider the staffing levels during this transition, and not just for a week or a month. It takes many months for this to happen, unfortunately. And, and I also discussed that with Dr. Tanvir at the same meeting, um, that the, uh, the concerns for these me metrics in terms of patient satisfaction scores will drop dramatically when the nurses are focused on making the computer accurate. They're going to spend less time with the patients. And that takes more staffing. I saw it personally, but a number of the members commented on this. This is potentially problematic. I know you had a, you were not able to come. There was a separate thing, so, um, but uh, I, I really encourage um, being very cautious with staffing, especially there. Um, just because of my sense of the savvy, computer savvy of some of the staff there. Um, and you, you, you're aware of all this. Yeah. I mean, San Leandro still uses paper yes. a lot, right? Yes, yes. So I mean, there's a computer system, an antiquated one, um, but the day-to-day -day charting, which has, you know, the radiology, the labs, mm -hmm. all the dictations are there. But in terms of the day-to-day -day charting, that is in a paper chart still. Mm -hmm. um, no. So that transition is going to be painful for some of the staff. I don't think it's going to be as problematic for a lot of the physicians because, you know, there are nuances to the way Epic is used at different facilities, but most people are kind of used to that already, and once you upload the basic templates. So um, other issues, um, joint commission accreditation came through with the changes that we made to the bylaws, which were approved. Um, so that's... Encouraging and good. The uh, 5150 hold, the San Leandro e ER has the ability to do that, to remove those holes and place them, which the emergency department is very excited about to keep their throughput. Uh, the emergency department metrics, which I discussed or briefly mentioned, you know, are a little concerning the, the left without being seen rate and some of the time to admissions have really increased in the last few months. I think some of that had to do with some sca staff scheduling changes, according to Dr. Exali, right at the flu season happening in December. Um, and he's attributing some of that to some of the ED beds are closing at the, in the evening time, and hopefully we can address that. Um, and they have, mostly it's a lack of inpatient bed availability. There are people that are bored in the ED for a long time still. Part of that's because of the construction, because we've lost half a floor of beds for inpatients, so hopefully that impaction will, will reduce um, shortly uh, once the, the other half a floor is available for inpatient beds. Uh, final thing, the medical staff meeting. I, I definitely appreciate meeting with uh, Dr. Ballard and Dr. Hearn. I, I've got to say that, that and I have to be much more specific here, I think that there have been some issues in terms of the, um, uh, with our NEC, looking at the proposals which have been uh, given to us for the, and the, the main thing we're talking about now um, is really um, representation on the other NEC, and um, our NEC um, universally feels that it's um, 
not being adequately represented or respected in this process, not so much in the process, but in the initial um, recommendations. You know, we've had discussions. I think the basic structure, there's, there's a fair disagreement on the basic structure. Our vision of this structure, and this is pretty universal, is having divisions um, which would be appropriate to the three departments that exist at the hospital now. Surgery, medicine, emergency department. And those include everything, basically. Mm -hmm. So surgery has pathology, orthopedics, everything related to surgery. Uh, medicine, radiology, and any other medical subspecialty. And the emergency department is really the emergency department. Um, you know, our initial request was to have uh, five voting members on the MEC here. There are 25 members currently on the MEC who vote. Um, and as a full-service um, facility, uh, we felt that was a reasonable amount. You know, one-fifth, it's, you know, in terms of volume, medical staff, it seemed reasonable. You know, the numbers in terms of medical staff, it's, it's very hard to tease that out. You know, Highland has about 700 and something, 767 total medical staff. San Leandro, about 347. But in terms of active staff, I think that's the number that you have to look at because there are a lot of people on staff at hospitals. It's probably around 400, if I could guess, talking to a satira uh, that are actively working at, at Highland and about 80 to 90 at San Leandro. Um, so I think that proportion, five out of what would then be 30, is not an unreasonable representation. Um, the first version of a, an offer were a change to the bylaws was sent to me, which included one vote. Hmm. One vote for the entire um, for the entire acute care hospital there. And I can tell you, when I presented that to RVC, the word that was used is insulting. You know, quite frankly. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know how you move from there. Our, our goal is to engage. And I, I still have serious questions about our ability to, to come to meetings perpetually and um, on a regular basis due to the timing of that MEC meeting here and the nature of our practice being a little different, you know, the community physicians. Carving out the middle of the day or morning for that is, is much more difficult, potentially. Um, so we've had further discussions, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, when we discussed this further, you know, it was discussed to maybe two votes with one other non-voting member. I mean, I, I felt that, uh, you know, personally and the other members of our staff feel that the point of having somebody from the surgical services, someone from the medical services, someone from uh, the emergency division, which is quite a busy department there, to come to MEC and express their individual concerns, I think is valuable uh, for the system. The other two votes were the chief and vice chief of staff, uh, or the equivalent thereof, because there won't be a chief of staff. It'll be the, whatever, the chief of quality or something. We'll come up with some name. Um, I, I don't think those are unreasonable numbers. Apparently, they are to the Highland MEC. I'm not quite sure what a one, you know, one-sixth minority would in terms of a problem for the, the uh, current MEC. Um, but that's where we stand now. So I, I think that we can discuss this further, but the last time we discussed it, you know, I the first time we discussed it, I offered to come and, and sort of present myself and say, you know, where we were coming from here. 
Um, and I'm you know, planning on doing that hopefully in sometime in the near future, uh, next month at the NEC. Um, I want to participate. I mean, I think that the hard part on our end is going to be getting people to participate um, because we're so busy and to carve that time out. But right now, the, the, the members, they are interested and want to participate and, and provide a different perspective. Um, so that has been one of the major hurdles. I don't think that's going to be the only one. Uh, there are going to be other issues here, I can tell you. I mean, simply the matter of, and this is just a bylaws adjustment that has to be made, but you know, our local division of surgery, whoever that chief would be, is voted by the members of the department. It's a pure democracy, like the at-large members are done on the board at MEC currently. The chief of surgery at Highland is a search committee picked by the CEO, right, basically, but the search committee picks someone as a group. So it's a completely different process. That's not articulated in the current bylaws. I mean, I think the vision of the Highland MEC is that the chief of surgery would be the chair for surgery of the system, and, and I appreciate that that potentially is, is a, a good way to do it. I think the reality of that is not going to provide adequate representation for the physicians that, that practice there. It could be that the surgery has a much more blending of departments than I think other departments because there are a number of orthopedists who sometimes come and the general surgeons do take call there and, and they, so they participate much more. Um, but medicine, and to quote the chief of medicine, um, the chief of medicine here will not, never will, probably will never take care of a medical patient that's in the a hospital. Just to assume that the chief of medicine at Highland will know what's happening in terms of the Department of Medicine or the physicians at San Leandro, I think is problematic and, and that's the point that he brought up. Um, so, you know, we're still discussing this um, and I can tell you this is not something that the members at, at San Leandro just want to abandon. Um, so, we'll keep working on it. But those are the more specific details. Any questions? Thank you for your report, Dr. Ingenio. Trustees, open it up for questions. And the, and the timeline for this is we are thinking, oh, sorry, um, August, but January? August. Well, August, I think, and that's because of certain other time frames. Well, actually, the, uh, the, the, the timeline here, you know, calls for a, uh, the revised bylaws being presented to this board in the May meeting. Right, right. Um, and if the revised bylaws were approved in the May meeting, uh, then they would be ratified by the medical staffs thereafter, which would permit the newly constituted medical staff to be in place by July 1st, which is the 90 days prior to the license change that's required by CDPH. So that, um, that is what we're looking at. Yeah. We've got a question. Oh, yeah. Dr. Bellar. In, in my conversations, both via email and in person with our medical staff, we, we are fully committed to meet a resolution of this by the end of March. Thank you. Well, the, the question depends on what your definition of fully committed to a resolution. In the past, when you've presented things to me, you said, well, we voted on this. This is our last and final offer on how we should have our medical staff, our med, med exec, designed. That's not much of a discussion, quite frankly. 
Um, and I know you're reflecting, you're caught in the middle. You're reflecting, I guess, what the, the other members of the MEC are, are telling you. Uh, and that's why, way back, I offered to come and talk to people. I, you know, I don't think the numbers that I'm quoting here, which I think are accurate, that I get from Satira are unreasonable. So I think it's an unreasonable. Why is it waiting until March? Like, why hasn't haven't Japan well, spoken? I think that that we've had many conversations. There were conversations in the fall that Dr. Hearn led, and um, I signed on in January and continued those conversations. We've had three or four discussions in our MedExec meetings about what our constituency feels is fair and equal equity distribution across the board for someone who's going to, member, going to join the system as a member. And the, you know, the feelings of the MedExec members who each represent hundreds of people you know, by their, you know, for their own departments, they've really had some challenges with accepting, you know, an entity coming in and saying we want five votes when departments that have 100, 150, 200 people have one vote or two votes. So it's it's been that kind of discussion, and I think we've we've actually with multiple discussions, multiple email communications, have moved the needle of what people are comfortable with. And I think at this point, I, is, which is why I am inviting Dr. Ingenue to come and speak in March, that you know, if, if he can present a cogent argument to them that they can then really sign on for, I'm in support of the voice of the Medical Exec Committee. And we'll make a vote after he speaks. And that will probably be as far as I can push that needle <laughs> with this group of people. And I have to respect their, their position, too, because I'm responsible to them. Can I comment? Yes. As, as a matter of perspective, uh, John George is five, not John George, I mean, Fairmont is five physiatrists and some hospitalists who also work at Alameda, and they have two votes. Right. So the initial offer to us was, was one vote for an acute care hospital with all specialties except pediatrics OB, nurse surgery. Um, and we found that somewhat problematic. And two votes to be the equivalent of five physicians to a doing physiatry also to us is somewhat problematic. Now, is, is what we, you know, is this worth arguing over? And that's a question I've asked myself. Who cares? You know, it's, is it going to affect my practice and most of the physicians? No, but we, probably not, I hope not, but we want to be involved here. And, and part of it is having a voting member go, just sitting there and talking has some value, but you know, I, I don't think these numbers are unreasonable. And you know, you have to look when we say department, the one vote for surgery at San Leandro is, as I said, orthopedics, general surgery, vascular, which is a big service there, you know, pathology, um, it's and all the other surgical specialties. You know, you, I grant you there is one vote for surgery at Highland, but then there's also the vote for the trauma director. There's the vote for pathology. There's the vote for orthopedics. There's actually six votes that would represent surgery. Mm. So I don't think you can say that one vote for surgery at San Leandro is the same as one vote for the chief of surgery at, at, at Highland. It, it's not. It, it, but how, however you want to do it, that's, I'm more than willing to present our case to the MEC, and you know, I, I don't want to be a threat. I don't think this should be a threat. I think this is asking for increased participation. So why that's a problem is beyond me. 
it is beyond me why this is an issue, you know, quite frankly. It feels like we need the electoral college between all of the places. So I'm, I'm really concerned about this. Um, uh, Before you comment, just one last thing. Mm -hmm. you, know, you also have to take a perspective where this medical staff is coming from. Mm -hmm. right? This medical staff is coming from a group of physicians who were told with two months notice that the license of the hospital is going to be revoked and the whole medical staff is going to be dissolved. Yeah. Now, you can call it a merger, which is, is what it was called, but they're very sensitive to what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's not gone over very well, Kelly. Mm -hmm. yeah, my only comment is um, I would be very nervous about accepting a very small representation for San Leandro because I think that that would add salt to the wound and it probably will continue to fester and make for some very bad long-term repercussions between all of the various leaders that need to work together and then ultimately it hurts the quality of care that we provide to our patients. And so I, I, I would like at some point for the board to have a chance to understand what are the um, various options that people have considered uh, because it may be simply saying, not simply, I'll take that out, it may be saying we have to come to a place where each of the sites has a total of X represent, uh, representatives and it's not just one, it can't be. It's got to be more than one. And regardless of the size, this is the Kentucky versus California having two senators. And, you know, Kentucky's only, what, 2 million people or, what, 45 million? It is what it is. That's uh, democracy. I mean, I, I <laughs> just, if, I, if I could just interject one point on that. You know, understand that the medical staffs are the sort of arbiters of their bylaws. Understood. Uh, the board approves their bylaws, but given their obligations and responsibilities that are set by the Joint Commission, it's up to the medical staff to determine how their bylaws will be structured in those points. I think, I think you're talking more about building trust as yes. there's this relationship. If there's no fabric of trust when you're coming into this, we are just starting off in a not very good place. And, and I will say that in all of my conversations with our med staff, in these many times we've discussed this issue, I believe the, the consensus is, is that we absolutely positively want to make this a win-win for everyone and not allow members of our med staff to feel as if they're representation for their own departments has been somehow superseded by a different group. So, and, and I respect that, and I know where they're coming from, and I think that the large divisions that have one vote only on our med staff have been the ones who have had the hardest time with this, because we have flexed, we have, we have flexed our offer, pretty much tripled our offer, to go up to two voting members with one non-voting member, to help communicate. So we've gone from one to three. And um, and I'm hoping that when Dr. Jr. speaks to the group, they can think of even some other arrangement to accommodate, to have them with us as much as possible and to work with us. And I mean, I've explained, tried to explain to the San Leander group that, that our head exec is one of the most 
cooperative and socially intelligent group of people I've ever worked with. So I, I really would like to further that and not have antagonism enter into this process any more than we absolutely have to. Dr. J. Uh, a quick question, uh, sorry, Dr. Bulari. I, I think you are on the medical staff of St. Leandro as well, right? I am. And you operate at St. Leandro. I do. As the perspective of the There are actually 250 physicians out of that 350 member on the med staff that are actually hiring physicians. Say that again, I'm sorry. There are, of the 350 people that are credentialed at San Leandro, right. 250 of them are already hiring physicians. Okay, thank you, okay. And so, that's a good point. Would you say that, they, that those physicians practice equally at both sites? I would say that those physicians practice anywhere from 60 to 80 percent at other core facilities and not necessarily just Highland, and 20 to 40 percent at San Leandro, depending on which group you're discussing. We have emergency medicine, we have radiology, we're soon to have anesthesia, and we have surgery and orthopedics, all that go down there. And I think we all feel that we have representation through the chairs of the respective departments already. So those voices for 250 of those med exec members are already well established within the medical executive infrastructure here. Trustees, any further questions? Now we have super delegates. So maybe there are people who are going to represent too. Well, I would just comment. I, I, I also want this, that, you know, share in, the, in Dr. Bard's goal of having this go smoothly and, and everyone else as well. I, but I want to ensure that we, we are, that all of the MECs consider this, the partnership, the partnership that's been going on for the past six, five years, what, 2014? Five years almost? Um, with Alameda 6 with San Leandro, and um, these are really important issues. The, 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 the partnership is, is changing now with San Leandro, of course, but some of the systemic issues haven't changed. And San Leandro is, I, I think of the ED, and I'm thinking of Alameda and San Leandro, and the ED objectives in the core are different and, um, than the ED objectives in the community hospital. Okay. So, uh, how do we ensure that the, and I appreciate um, this, that surgery is obviously going to have more of an understanding and an ability to share knowledge and transfer knowledge at the, at the all sites. But the ED or um, medicine, the medicine acute, acute, those might be places where it's substantially different and the voice of the MECs or the voice of the physicians at the small community sites are more important. And, and I guess this goes also to what I just learned um, from Dr. Insania, that they, historically we've had more MEC representatives from Fairmont on Highland. The, the Fairmont um, contingent, I guess, has been expanded on the Highland MEC, and those representations may not be necessary and maybe time to evolve to have more of the community voice rather than the mm -hmm. rehab voice. No, I mean, that's not what I mean, Richard, of course, but 
and, and I think, you know, the, the conversation that we had on Tuesday night at San Leandro was that if we can just establish a starting point, an amicable starting point, that if in three, six, 12 months we find that we do need more representation in terms of voting members to accomplish the quality things we want to accomplish at San Leandro, there is absolutely nothing standing in the way from us revising our bylaws to incorporate that. I just, I, I really just feel that both net execs need to feel like they're starting out in a, from a place where each position is being respected. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that I've got my NEC on board with that at this point. And I'm hoping that Dr. Ingenie can make the case because I'm kind of tired of trying to do it on my own. Dr. Hearn. Mike, Dr. Hearn. And didn't you retire as chief of staff? Why do you keep coming back? <laughs> keep being asked by the chair of QPSC to come yeah. back and speak. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just uh, for further clarification, as the, the bylaws are currently uh, constructed and allow, um, the notion is, is that the majority, there are some ex officio members on the MEC, including past chiefs of staff, uh, and that sort of thing, secretary treasurer. Um, but uh, 12, basically half of the members of the MEC are system chairs. So those are chairs that are over surgery, medicine, emergency medicine, orthopedics, in all of the various departments. So that is 12, I believe. Um, and then the at-large members, I'm just providing clarification. The at-large members are designed to be the House of Representatives proportional representation of various sites. So there are three members that are at-large members from Highland, the other acute care facility which represents multiple specialties here. So that is the perspective that the MAC has been discussing and voting on in that they see, and I think we all see that in terms of ambulatory and psychiatry and, and behavioral health, and there is systemness and there are system chairs and then there are representatives from each of our facilities. There are three Highland at-large representatives. So in the context of San Leandro requesting five, that is where the MEC is having challenge in reconciling that. And I guess because the system chairs are all from the core, just in terms of critical mass, it seems like these are the guys who know this part of the ecosystem really well and not as much well, as the I, I would, even though there is a real good demarcation. Yeah, I, I would beg to differ that because at least in our department in emergency medicine and now in radiology, all of the staff in those departments are now spending time at, at San Leandro and we see the problems. We see we're, we're able to to really bring that back and say, hey, can we look at this at San Leandro? And we do that in our faculty meetings. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, what I was resistant to when this all first started and we started buying hospitals and stuff, I was, I was very concerned that it would take away from Highland. But I, I have to admit that I have signed on to the systemless concept. And I truly believe that the things that we do that encourage systemness will make us better. I think the things that we do that undermine systemless, like create these different models in different hospitals and, and maintain this separateness, is going to undermine the potential benefits of being a true system. And, and I think that's why 
you know, when we've had the conversations and I'm at exec, it's been, we want to think of this as part of our system. We are all one. And, and you weren't, most of you weren't at our, at our staff dinner last fall that I said as my inaugural two cents, I have two things in, in my life that are important to me, and that's maintaining unity, and it comes from Lion King 2, so if you haven't seen it, watch it. <laughs> and really trying to empower people to be the best they can be. And I feel like this has challenged those two concepts for me beyond ever. I thought it would in my first two months as chief of staff, but I, I'm willing to do what's necessary to try to give equal voices across the, the spectrum, and part of that's letting Dr. Engineer come and speak. And then I have to respect what the med staff comes up with after this all happens, and, and that's what I'll support at the end of March, which is when we'll decide what we will decide. Trustee Johnson. Dr. Ford, can you tell me um, of the MEC, of the, of the core MEC, are there physicians who are in like a sole or a, a very small group practice? Or is there most of the MEC even? The, chief, the general surgery program here feels like a very small group practice. We're seven, five to seven people over the last 15 years. Okay. Now, I was just curious, because like, like, that's why I see kind of for Alameda and San Leandro, or the, the, the provider, provider perspective, or the provider um, organizational model. Understood. And, and there are, I mean, Dr. E is, Dr. E is a department of one. And Dr. Ye for... And Dr. Ye is in the Department of One, basically, or two. Yeah, thank you to both of you for the work you're doing, and I think that if there was more time for that, then there's a little bit more. It's it's just that the time frame is so short. And, it uh, is. So, so. Um, uh, uh, coming back to where we're, we've chewed into some of the time we gained, but that was a very important dialogue. Mm -hmm. the, the, this committee will, of course, want a, a, a report next month on this, and we'll, we'll house that within this mm -hmm. chief of staff report. Mm -hmm. uh, Doctor, yes. So will we get like the blue shield, like what's happening with the contract or what uh, the that, time frame yeah, is? Great. Is that is that something we hear in finance, or is this the place to hear about like what's happening with the contract, blue shield, and how how much longer? Where, where are we with it? To Dr. Ingenio's point about not the, uh, seeing some insurers. Yeah. Are we out of contracts with blue shield in? In the hospital. Uh, to my knowledge, I, I think our interim CFO has been looking at that, and uh, I think we have somebody, uh, we have a contractor looking at all our contracts. Uh, um, so we can take this question, come back with an answer. With, uh, yeah, he's know some time frame of like where we a are. A projected disposition with yeah. regard to insurers, I think, to address one of Dr. Ingenio's point, I think is very appropriate. Dr. Ingenio, the standard work, can you, uh, and I think this dialogue kind of bears out answer number one, uh, can you please rank order your top concerns as the Chief of Staff? And I'll remind you what you said last time, which was number one, the merger of the medical staffs, and number two, anesthesiology. That, those were your top two. So merger still be number one. I think number two, after more consideration and hearing Dr. English, you know, I, I still have you know, concerns about the Sapphire implementation okay. there and appropriate staffing for that. That would be my number so two. That's moved to your number two for yeah, anesthesia. Yeah, anesthesia much less so. Okay. And you know, I probably even almost, you know, we haven't actually started working with the anesthesiologist, but I, my sense is that it's not going to be an issue. 
I'm a little concerned about the, the impact of the emergency department there. Okay. We, we, so that is a concern that Dr. Sally hopefully can report back to us and, and you know, hopefully at the next MEC we can talk about it a little bit more. Excellent. Thank you for your report. Dr. Marzouk, um, if you don't mind, if we can do this in about nine minutes, that would well, be I was, I was hoping to do it in a month. That would be wonderful. <laughs> to some time back. So Dr. Marzouk, I'll take the staff from Alameda Hospital. Thank you for giving your, your report in advance. Just, uh, uh, you have uh, a report. Uh, just. Uh, uh, briefly, a couple of uh, issues we have had uh, 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 in specialty coverage, which I alluded to last time. Uh, we've had uh, a resolution of the gastroenterology specialty coverage, and, and uh, with, uh, with Dr. Jamaluddin, we're working on a system uh, level solution for coverage. Uh, also, there have been ongoing discussions with cardiology about cardiology coverage, particularly on, on weekends. And uh, uh, finally, uh, the issue of uh, the surge and how it's impacted uh, Alameda Hospital has, uh, has uh, including the transfer process, is a process in evolution and uh, with the administration uh, been very helpful in allowing, uh, or I, as I understand, uh, having uh, extra manpower to to uh, to the hospitals at uh, at uh, Alameda Hospital, particularly during the, the shifts that uh, that are the evening shifts and the night shifts. Uh, and finally, we uh, we uh, revised our rules and regulations, which are to be approved here uh, to allow. Uh, surgical residents or residents in uh, in uh, at Alameda Hospital because we have no provisions for residents and uh, with with special uh, scope of practice and meets all the regulations the uh, Joint Commission regulations and uh, as uh, I think the uh, page 87 uh, of uh, of your packet uh, to and uh, Hopefully we'll, uh, uh, we'll have uh, the surgery residents uh, in place very shortly. Any Thank questions? You. Trustees, questions? So, so just to refresh, um, at your at your last uh, QPSC, I asked you to rank order your top concerns. You said number one, the hospitalist workload, and it seems that you have some type of redress on that. Yes, it seems like uh, we're working to, uh, and I'm sure that uh, Jamal can speak to that a little bit more okay. in terms of, uh, of uh, the workload on uh, I think it, it might suffice to say that you're satisfied with the direction that it's going. Is that true? Yes, I am. Okay. And this, the second uh, comment you said was issues with specialty cardiology on GI, GI coverage at Alameda Hospital. Can you speak on that one more time? Yeah, we, we uh, resolved the, the issue of of the GI coverage uh, because of, uh, of uh, excuse me. Uh, just want to shut this off. Sorry. Uh, uh, the, the GI coverage uh, has been uh, resolved. Get the cardiology coverage is uh, still in discussion and it's a matter of, of, uh, of uh, we had a, a nice meeting 
as to what the availability of the cardiology coverage on weekends are, and uh, it's an uh, ongoing discussion still. Get it. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar here. My other job compels me to ask a, a curious question. So you made mention of s discussion of system GI coverage. Um, my other job, actually, at this, at this hospital is I'm the chief of GI here. And I've not been in engaged on any of these dialogues. You made comment about system coverage for GI? Well, I have to ask the uh, Dr. Uh, this was something that uh, you presented with uh, Dr. about the possibility of a system-wide coverage. That's <coughs> you'd be involved. Okay. Just for the record, I have not been. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, with that, I'll ask you to rank order your top concerns once again. Again, I think uh, it's uh, the, the transfer and the surge. Surge is now number one for you? Well, no, I would say when you're working out to the transfer, Transfer, is this number one for you? Transfer, there have been some issues in, in transfers, particularly in the evening. Uh, so transfers to Highland Hospital is your primary no, issue? No, no. Transfers from oh, sorry, sorry, that's what I meant. Transfers okay. from Highland to Alameda Hospital Highland is your number one is, is the number one issue, particularly as uh, the smoothness of the transfer and the timeliness of the transfer. Got it. And patients will be transferred at uh, Noon and we'll get there till seven or eight mm -hmm. at night. For example, or there'll be a visual discussion, hey, we accept this transfer, and so What would be your number two? Number two was, uh, would be uh, uh, the ongoing discussions for uh, cardiology. Do you have a number three? Uh, I think we've resolved the resident issue, okay. so that's. Uh, that's uh, hmm. I ask because Epic hasn't been brought up in your in your in your presentation. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I it's it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the people that uh, that uh, practice uh, at Highland are I'm sorry, on Amida have, uh, have a lot Privileged of people who say practice at other hospitals. So Epic is not as foreign to them uh, as, and this was an interesting. Uh, point by Dr. Ingenia about the, the staff. I'm not really, uh, uh, I don't know how much our staff is, uh, is uh, we use the same system, I think, uh, that San Andrew does in terms of Meditech and, uh, again, paper charting. So I don't know how much our... Uh, it's actually different. It's, uh, it's not a different thing? Yeah. It's a different version of it. It's something different. Say it's not a different version. Uh, it's ours is way different. But we still do manual. We do manual progress notes. Else, you know, but I don't know about uh, the, the nursing staff and the other staff. How how well uh, they they are acquainted with Epic and stuff. Sure. May I ask you to, at your subsequent reports, give us a feel for us vis-a-vis the nursing staff? I would, I would have to, you know, ask the, uh, I mean, I will, I will, at the same time, call Veronica and uh, other members of, uh, of our staff. These are tectonic changes. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so, so we need to make consideration there. And um, are surgeries, those kinds of things during, we, we know, of course, during any kind of epic transition that there'll be a dip in 
and people mean that the, that that kind of staffing of folks who've really not even had EHR of any form right. in the past. And, and, are we <coughs> going to be taking good care of that during uh, plan plan B as you're thinking of the budget for um, the coming year? We're seeing the budget in the <laughs> finance committee, and I'm seeing I, I, I will, that. I will say, I mean, again, I, I, I would I would say that. Uh, I think as we've shared before in other meetings with the board, uh, you know, there is a very robust educational plan that's being put together by not only IT, but with the support and, and, and uh, you know, guidance of EPIC themselves. Uh, you know, we have an educator that's dedicate, dedicated and designated for this effort uh, along, along with uh, our clinical education team. So, uh, you know, we, we have been doing assessments and our nursing leaders at each of the sites have been communicating and asking and polling their staff and getting a sense of what is the current state. One of the things that I would say is that just like some of our physicians that practice and, and uh, you know, provide services at other hospitals, a lot of our staff also moonlights and works at other hospitals as well that uh, have systems of this nature. So, I mean, again, we, we are certainly, it, it is a valuable point and it is something that we're, we're looking at, uh, the plan and part of the the go live and, and the effort. So as, as you recall, over the next, from July through go live, uh, June through go live, it, it's going to be very aggressive in the sense of the amount of training that's going to be happening to all the different users, super users, credentialed users, things of that nature. And then at go live and for a period of time beyond go live, there's a tremendous amount of resources that will be available for direct elbow support, as we call it, elbow support to ensure that we're guiding and supporting all of our users through that entire process. So again, I, I, no, long answer that I, I think to the short one saying, yeah, I think we're, we're looking at that, we're very aware of that, we're wanting to make sure that we capture that. And so again, points well taken, but we're, we're, I think we have a good plan for it. Well, if I could just add on to it, because Louise missed one of our oversight meetings. So at the oversight meeting, we discussed specifically the issue of computer literacy, mm -hmm. assessing that level amongst the staff in preparation for actually entering into training. So that those folks who had you know, absolutely no computer literacy would receive necessary literacy to get them up to a particular level and then continue them on. So that is an actual building part of the, uh, the training that we're you know, envisioning. So you know, depending upon where they fall in that spectrum, we do have something tailored for them. Dr. J. Uh, just uh, very quickly, I mean, I, I just want to add about the training uh, that we have a new leader lab now in Sapphire. Her name is uh, Raluca Chacon. She's going to publish the course catalog tomorrow, so it will be available for everybody with all the specialty by class. Could you spell her last name for me? Uh, C I O C A N. Okay. I'll type this out later. Yeah. Uh, and I met also the EPIC uh, lead for the training. And the most important uh, message I want to give to the medical staff uh, is that we should not be shy about bringing uh, computer illiteracy because uh, EPIC has, has a competency-based uh, module that can be done very quietly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole training is competency-based and it's very, very uh, provider-centric. So it, it, it's, uh, it's an effective training. The second point I want to make as it came up is about contracting. Uh, uh, I know that uh, we have a chancellor consulting that is coming uh, to us and probably will provide a strategy about contracting. I, I, I have uh, had conversation with, uh, with uh, uh, Nancy uh, Katz 
but I can't, uh, I can't, I don't have much details about this, but this is an issue that we are looking at very closely. Uh, the last is, uh, as it relates to the transfer, uh, 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 Dr. Tornabini and, uh, and uh, Ms. Elisa Cooper are, are taking very strong look at this in, uh, in partnership with Sheila Rizzo, and we are going to have metrics. In addition, uh, we have approved an increase in the staffing of the AIM hospitalist by two FTEs in order to have more teams for them uh, for them uh, to accommodate the, the transfers. Plus, we are going to have metrics and tools to make sure that the transfers are safe and impact on the safety of care of the AIM of the of the Alameda hospital patients who are inpatients. Thank you, Dr. Chang. Uh, I'll end, Dr. Marzouk. Last question. Do you feel resourced to, na to navigate those top concerns that you have? Yes. Thank you. Thank you all. Can I have a point, yes, of order, point of order for the chair regarding the um, medical staff reports? I just wanted to share something quickly with um, the, the, the issue came up, and it comes up often with transfers. Of course. And um, so I wanted to share with this committee that there is a um, ballot measure in Alameda on April 9th to establish a medical respite for homeless seniors on the island of Alameda, 50 beds, and um, pretty much uh, the, the pros and cons are what you would expect, not in my backyard, versus let's help homeless people who are being transitioned out of acute care. So I just wanted to advise you all that. Um, I think that's an important maybe, addition to our landscape. Mm -hmm. That's what we, this, we, yes, we discuss operations. That might help our transfer. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So with that, we close item D. We're only five minutes behind, and we will move into item E. Uh, we have the benefit of having Dr. Triple here to give us the behavioral health quality metric report. Uh, again, in keeping with principles, 25% uh, uh, presentation, 75% dialogue. Dr. Triple wrote a very nice five-page uh, write-up on this. I'll, I'll leave it her to, to introduce us to it. We've allocated 15 minutes to this one, which we can still do. Uh, Dr. Triple, floor is yours. Thank you. Um, I think some of the... So there, I think there are a lot of questions and, and uh, feedback to begin in terms of some of the other items that are, that are included in the report, so I certainly want to allow for that time. Um, but some of the items that we have uh, really highlighted in terms of the work that are being done uh, relate to the impact generally of, of uh, acuity. And I apologize, I'm kind of having a little te technical difficulty looking at my information. Um, so that being said, um, our, our access and all of our metrics in terms of that are, are pretty much what we would have expected them to see. Um, they're not as, um, in terms of meeting target, for example, access is where it uh, is just shy of target. But what's interesting is, again, we're seeing the correlations between things that I've mentioned before in terms of patient acuity, length of stay, and PES. The same themes that we are, have been reporting, we are seeing in terms of the metrics. So those are new surprises. Uh, there. One of the uh, surprises, although our patient experience um, is still uh, slightly b below target, what we are seeing is that with all of the new measures that we've in included, we would have uh, expected to see much more of a striking dip in those numbers, and we didn't. So again, kudos to the team and the staff for really attempting to address um, patient need, patient care needs, and really respond to the rapid onslaught of care plans and different operational changes that leaders have been engaging them with. Um, as I continue, and again, if there are questions that come up, I also want to acknowledge and 
pleased to have our medical leaders as well, Dr. Siddhartha and uh, Dr. Mukherjee in the back. So if there are their support as well as their leadership. So if there are questions, I, I certainly want to make sure I engage our, our leaders. Dr. Tribble, if you'll hold yes. on one pause, your great yes. report. Just to help the, the trustees, uh, she gave a very nice narrative. At the end of the narrative on page 107 is actually the dashboard, which mm -hmm. might help us as, as we're hearing her talk. Yes. Uh, so in terms of, uh, again, looking at the dashboard, it really speaks to the critical initiatives that we're going to be working on, and, I'll, and I'll, I can be very succinct when you ask the questions at the end of the, uh, the, uh, my report, is right now uh, patient safety is key at first and foremost on pretty much every single day that we come in. Um, from the start of our huddles, from our monthly leadership team meetings, our weekly, our daily huddles, uh, our leadership meetings, it's consistently looked at. Uh, one of the things that I'm, again, very proud of that was mentioned as well is our uh, FEMA initiative. Uh, as you're aware, again, FEMA is looking for failure modes and effects analysis. And um, when we in, in, uh, rolled that out with staff, again, we had to give a little caveat because failure sounds very... Uh, difficult to hear because staff are really doing their, their, they really are for the most part attempting to meet every hurdle that leaders, quite frankly, are putting in, in, ahead of them. And whenever there's an issue, we are holding um, those individuals accountable. But again, I want to thank our, um, our quality for leading that effort, and I think it's around the system. But what that's going to look like for John George specifically is we have been uh, racking our brains and coming up with uh, individual interviews of staff, but we're literally going down now back to the staff level and combining this FEMA initiative with our town hall. That will be occurring uh, next week. We've been planning that now for several weeks, and so we will be getting staff feedback on a lot of the critical incidents, the issues that will be occurring, anything that leaders have not been thinking of. But we felt like at this point, um, beyond the individual uh, consultations and the meetings that we've had, we really need to go literally to people and get a better sense of what barriers they're seeing that we should really try, reinvest in, or quite frankly, uh, some of the protocols that we've developed, are they really helpful? Mm -hmm. Have they really been doing what we need to have happen? And again, I, I want to highlight that because what we, what we anticipate, I know uh, um, uh, Epic has been mentioning, has been mentioned, we anticipate just a rising acuity just because of life. And then we cringe at what Epic will do because we will need to, we're dealing with patients that don't want to be in our facility. 99.9% uh, .9 of them don't want to be there. And so when you have downtime, it looks very different in John George. And so we're trying to prepare uh, preemptively for all the safety measures, but that is on the back of, at least my mind, in terms of how we're going to mitigate that. I, I want to move through, because I think it's some of the critical issues that we've been talking about. Um, we, what we are really breaking down are three critical areas of, of safety concern that is rising to our daily bread, basically, in terms of what our leaders are talking about. That's around patient sexual behaviors, patient elopements, and high-risk patients. And I wanted to spend just a bit of time to break that down and certainly allow for questions. But um, as I have, I think I've mentioned before, what we're seeing is a high level of individuals presenting to John George. Uh, and demographically, they are looking different. Again, I've said this before, but I just want to take a, a, a bit of time to talk about that. Um, um, for all those that are here. Um, so demographically, what is changing now is many of the individuals are now new to the system. 
are either tenuously engaged or not engaged in other parts of our community or county programs. So that means often many of them are coming in and have really very little connection. Mm -hmm. And or we are seeing a population of individuals coming in that are developmentally delayed. And over the last mm -hmm. few years there have been a striking reduction in state federal level of uh, funding for those with developmental delays, mental retardation, um, autism, things like that. And so without places for those individuals to live, many of them may be conserved or living with their family members. And so when those individuals experience mental health issue, crisis civilization, traditional ones in the community cannot cannot meet those needs. They're very medically complex and developmentally different than the typical patient uh, population. But we are seeing striking numbers of those patients coming in. The other uh, pieces I've mentioned previously, but again, I wanted to hone in on, we're seeing an increase in TAY youth. And as you can imagine, for transitional age youth, this is the acronym, between the ages of 16 to 24, if you think about what is happening just physiologically in that patient population and then you add impulsivity and you add um, um, just a heightened sense of awareness of body and others, we're seeing some issues. So one of the things that we're targeting is not only looking at patients who we would imagine them to be, um, for lack of a better term, a perpetrator or a person who can be um, victimizing potentially because those individuals are immediately placed on one one but we're also looking because of the change in demographics um, and literally feedback that we've been having both in interaction with our staff and team and the visits on regulatory in terms of our reporting um, around how are we looking at people who are potentially vulnerable. Um, one of the nuances I, I want to highlight, and I'll try to stop talking very shortly, is that we are, have a very close relationship with patients' rights, and I want to underscore that. And for behavioral health, it looks very different in terms of whatever protocol we engage, i.e. a one-to-one, or we, we modify the way that we provide treatment, we have to do so in tandem with patients' rights. It's a statute and it's law, and it's related to how the county governs what happens with know-how patients. So for example, um, easy ways, for example, to identify patients who have behavioral, behavioral issues with sexuality or things you could theoretically really color code something very minor or something just to have a highlighted, there's some, a one-to-one, -one, just something for risk. We talked about it actually back then. Um, we immediately sought consult and you cannot differentiate those patients at all in terms of what they um, look like in terms of the milieu. So there's no different color in shoes, socks, nothing. It is their right to be treated the same as everyone else. And so that's a very private matter. So that makes it a little more complicated. And so what we had to do is initiate Q15s and that's in the process. And again, it's a different level of Q15 and you're looking at where a person is, what they're doing, who they're engaging with, and we have already started, particularly with our, our nurse leaders and others, and uh, medical and others, getting feedback on uh, describing levels of acuity. I have mentioned before that we are seeing acuity, and, and what I want to uh, uh, clarify is, again, in our with our acute settings and our acute partners, it's uh, acuity that that is in it of itself. You give a number, you know, what level one, two, or three, what that looks like. Behavioral health, at least, uh, uh, or John George, transitioned away from that many years ago when the ratios uh, were instituted for nursing. And acuity became more of a clinical determination. But we're back full circle, determining that we really need to be evaluating with a scale 
of acuity. So although we may not be able to demarcate any difference in how we approach that patient on the floor, that each nurse, mental health worker, psychiatrist, social worker, team member needs to know um, that uh, Karen Tribble is a patient and she is acute, she's a level three. And so the treatment protocols need to be tailored for that. So there's a lot of uh, clinical treatment planning efforts that are happening that I want to highlight. Um, one of the things um, specifically I want to drill down because we have an increased number of uh, sexual incidents and we are looking at what that looks like and I want to be very transparent in that. We are now increasing, uh, some of the things that are contributing to that is uh, we are increasing our diligence and reporting of every single event. And I, hadn't, I mentioned it before, um, but that may be as um, inappropriate, but benign as one patient touches the front of another patient or, or again in their psychosis they grab a part of the body or they invade a room and they get in the bed. We are including everything up into even sexual contact that's forcible, even if it's consensual. So we, it's very disturbing to staff and us and in, in, in our quality team when we report, but we are under, we are right now at a point of overly reporting and, and treating everything as a serious incident. And this has been very helpful because also it is tracking some um, areas that we'd like to improve upon. How we staff when we do nurse to nurse report. Where are the nurses actually standing? Uh, we did some recent uh, changes to our restrooms and uh, we, we looked at that, how the shape of the door, how that impacts, meaning how can you see into the restroom now that it's literature-proofed, and what can we do, how can we station staff. And so there are a lot of different things that we're trying to uh, uh, implement at this point that are very, very important. Um, we're even going so far as to talk about that in the patient groups. And again, it's, you have to think about it in a different way in terms of what our stance on sexuality is, in terms of what we can, how we support other patients and letting them know that this is very different. Uh, because as I mentioned, many individuals are coming from uh, their higher acuity, some are coming in from other organizations. And quite frankly, if you are in a licensed boarding care, you can have sexual relations if you consent with other individuals. That is not like, obviously, a locked psych unit. And so again, because of that uh, different experience in population, we're just seeing a shift. Um, one of the, a couple of other things that I want to make sure to highlight is we are trying to balance uh, um, our beta heart uh, in terms of making sure our, our staff feel comfortable continuing to report and that they know that we will hear and listen to anything with accountability. And so there is a, there is a very um, a fine line that we're walking because we certainly want to make sure that our staff feel uh, compelled, quite frankly, and required to report and let us know immediately. But even in, in terms of the managers, how quickly are they escalating? Even if they used to think that it was not something reportable or if patients um, laughed it off, we were saying report, report, report. However, if we do see some patient care issues or things that highlight either improvement for us, uh, we're also attempting to mitigate that with um, some kind of measures. So it is it's very difficult because I think um, just culturally, John George, uh, for lack of a better term, is raw as, as an organization that has been through a lot, uh, particularly four years ago. And so we're trying to address that uh, in a culturally palatable way so that the staff receive it in the spirit that it's coming from, um, from patient safety and a no tolerance for um, uh, lackadaisical approach for patient safety. So um, that is my 
five-page soliloquy condensed. I apologize if I went over, but I definitely have not. Thank you for that report. Trustee Jensen, lead us off. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, my question is about the your, your discussion or your uh, initial attempt to identify or segment, I guess, um, patients based on certain behaviors or certain diagnoses. For example, not necessarily diagnoses, but for example, fall risk. This came up in falls. We were finding that, um, as you know, for psychotropic medication, immediately you, you can't drive, and in many cases you really shouldn't walk too much until the medication takes effect. And we thought, well, if we can maybe give that patient an armband, so not um, not only one-to-one, -one, but so everyone in the milieu can say, hey, make sure you make sure Mrs. So-and-so is safe when she's ambulating through. And we vetted that, and we thought, is this a way that we can help protect the patient? And that's when patients right said, no, we probably shouldn't do that. So even if we thought a small right. dot, but not necessarily by diagnosis, not segmenting them, but we thought, is there a different way, a different curriculum? Well, this would be for ambulatory, because yeah. in, in the acute care setting, you can have a note on the door, and the, or you could actually have that information. At the, in their room? Absolutely. Or in their chart, right? In their chart is absolutely possible, but we went through everything that you just said. We thought if we could make it difficult to see uh, or anything, but it really, uh, as it, it is as communicated to us in statute from, pa from uh, patients' rights, is would be a breach of their confidentiality and rights of privacy. Well, it's a HIPAA probably issue because then they, it, 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 everyone would know the, what the condition has been um, cons uh, concern, I guess. Or? I, I think uh, it may be, but I think what, the, what feedback we got was it is uh, because of what historically has happened to mental health patients, <laughs> anything that uh, demarcates them differently in a behavioral health facility <laughs> is, is, is... So then I guess that was my second part of the question, which is it, 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 it wouldn't really be feasible to segment everyone who is at fall risk or, or you know, have all the, the fall risk when you know the, um, in, in terms of other more, um, more harmful behaviors, putting someone else. That's a good question. You could, and I think that comes to some of the conversations our leaders are having and the treatment teams, you can not segregate, but you certainly can um, <coughs> rethink the assignments on the units and as well as the, the, uh, the, the location of the rooms. So we've moved some patients closer to the nursing station, we've moved some patients closer to the restroom, we've looked, we've even have some um, rooms that have restrooms nearby. So there's, there's things you can do, um, but it's much more complicated, yes, because of that. Right, and the resources are much more limited than just putting an arm down on it. Exactly, and that would have been the easiest, low cost, but it's not. Thank you. Yes. Trustee Hernandez. Um, thank you so much for the report. I noticed at the end um, that you've placed a couple of times here uh, the importance of collaboration. And um, it's possible that this might be something for our retreat or, or further dialogue. But I just wonder if you could highlight a little bit how you're characterizing the level of collaboration with our Department of Public Health and where where are the, the greatest gaps that you'd like to, you know, maybe get some support to address? Um, a good question. I think um, I can speak uh, to my previous life in, in terms of that. I think mm -hmm. one of the questions that have been frequently discussed is, is, are there enough psychiatric inpatient beds to serve the need of the county? And the answer is 
No. Um, on the other hand, what the county's efforts are doing is to provide pre-crisis supports to divert from the hospital. And again, so it is a challenge because the juxtaposition is, so those that are not diverted from John George come are far more acute than anyone would have imagined. Mm -hmm. And so the collaboration is, is through talking about that. When there are new programs, we're, we're doing our best to be perhaps not at the table necessarily, but in collaboration. Um, they have hired, well, the county has what's called a critical care manager. And they are stationed, this isn't new, but they have a new person stationed at our facility, at John George. And that's wonderful because they, they are with us at the table, probably more so than they'd like to be, but any of these issues in terms of placement, in terms of what's happening, literally um, they probably don't know that at the other hospitals, including um, Highland and our other partners, if there's a patient that's very complicated on their way over, we bring in the county from the beginning. And because we're anticipating this will be, this will be a very difficult patient to discharge in the, in the, in the community because of their limited resources or, or finite or literally if there is a bed availability at a locked subacute within the next few hours it's filled. So, um, so that um, as well as uh, we're, we're talking about just the types of services that are being delivered. So I, I would say um, uh, it's, it's a very strong communicative partnership and there's always areas that we'd like to grow. Um, if the county would like to provide us additional funding, we would be happy to take it. Um, but I, I would say it's a, a very uh, open conversation. Yeah, I, I think we have to keep in mind that this population is probably touching a lot of other services is. in the county. And so, again, maybe this, this is for another day, but the theme for me this year is how can we collaborate more effectively with existing um, services so that our patients who are touching all of those other entities are connecting the dots in terms of what's available for them and so that we can reduce rehospitalization if it's something of that sort or you know bouncing in and out of different systems so I, I really welcome your ideas about that especially about John George and the patients that you're seeing so perhaps at another time Trustee Yeah, with, with the kind of acuity and the different demographics that you're seeing, I know that last year you started the mentors on discharge things. Is that is that explained? I know that was county funding that is county gives funded. that. So is there any scope of advocating for that or, or the other? Because like you said, these uh, so many of your patients are so isolated from and not, not having having navigated the system or other wraparound services. So that cusp after post-discharge is just such a vulnerable period for them. And how does that go? Absolutely. Uh, so it's, it's been a few years now since the contract from the county took service. Um, to, uh, folks at uh, the top of discharge with uh, mentors, essentially, people who've been through the system. And yes, it's been very successful. Um, literally, we are, have just met this week with a, it's an organization called Crisis Support Services. And I always get excited when it's free for service, but they were granted a, 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 a grant from the Innovations Mental Health Services Act grant from Alameda County to provide uh, post-discharge follow-up for patients who are um, suicidal and or high risk or who have had suicidal behaviors in the past and uh, they had me at hello again free for service makes a big difference but the outcomes are significant and what this organization um, is now preparing to work with our social services and then our other team members on is when a person is discharged not just a 
a consumer to follow them, a person who literally follows up with calling or uh, connecting with them, even texting. They have capacity to provide support through that, whatever that looks like, and helping them to basically try not to seriously harm themselves, obviously, but come back. Um, there are other programs I think I mentioned in the last presentation, the uh, Whole Person Care, uh, WC, all of those pilots, Trust Clinic, um, we're on different phases, so there's a lot of other pre-crisis programs that we're um, literally have opened the doors to say, come in, wherever that looks. And as well as, again, I highlighted it, we're so we're extremely pleased to have that 18-month um, contract with the, uh, or, or grant from the state for the bridge program, but literally leveraging, because a lot of our patients are coming in substance abuse mm -hmm. uh, disordered, mm -hmm. uh, leveraging those connections. And so those folks are now coming to John George within the behavioral health off-site to, to provide some linkage and follow-up. So uh, we're, we're, I think that goes to the other question from Chester Hernandez about that, trying to leverage every resource we could possibly think. Thank you, Gary. Dr. Tribble, thank you for your report. As for standard, I will, uh, I will ask the same question I ask everybody. Can you please rank order your top concerns as the CAO of <coughs> I would say uh, patient safety. Number first, one. Number one, okay. first and foremost, uh, covering any type of event. I would say number two would be uh, uh, staff engagement and, uh, and quite frankly, um, capacity. Safety, uh, staff engagement, capacity. And third one is uh, um, um, resource. Resource. Yes. Do you feel like you resource? You have. You are resourced, be it uh, in terms of planning, in terms of actual physical resources, to address these top concerns. I think that uh, we will be. We, we're attempting to be creative. Okay. I think we, we, the demand for everyone's so delicate the on the answer. Yeah, I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, we certainly have to ask for <laughs> stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> Resources, I think, would be very common. We can maybe ask for that specificity at a later time. Thank you very much for your report. With that, we will close out item E. We are running about 10 minutes behind. We'll go into item F. Uh, of course, we are always happy to welcome back uh, Mr. Richard Espinoza, our CAO for post-acute care. Richard, thank you for coming back. We're going to hear the post-acute SBU. Whatever time you can give us would be appreciated, but the time is yours. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me um, and following with access. Um, the post-acute has been um, pretty full. We've been running at about 97% occupancy uh, across the SBU. And uh, in our acute rehab, we've seen dramatic growth um, from quarter two of 2018 from quarter two of 2017 and a lot of that has been around implementation of effective and efficient practices. We've brought on a second physiatrist, Dr. Kim Washington, um, almost a year ago and she's been an incredible asset to that uh, group and she's been working closely with the medical director and the in group who provides internal medicine um, for that unit. So we've seen uh, a 55.1% growth um, from the same time last year. We've also seen a 64% one growth from internal admissions from all of our hospitals within the system, um, which is important um, for an overall of 78% coming from within our system. So as we hear around the table, the focus being on throughput post-acute is really working hard to make sure that we're able to 
help with the admissions into the post-acute from the hospital sites, and then also working with other organizations with discharging back into the community and making sure that patients have safe transitions back. And so as we've seen increases in admissions, we've also seen a 69.5% increase in discharges um, from our, our acute rehab. So incredible change from one year ago. Um, the FIM scores is how we monitor the improvements of our patients coming out of the acute rehab. And the average goal is about a 28 score, and we've been scoring at about 31, meaning that the patients are getting even better than we had anticipated. So great quality outcomes, which actually ties into some of the changes that are happening in October with CMS and its reimbursement, um, with changes in PPS, which will now focus on some quality measures and, and move away um, from FIMS. And so the unit is not only looking at teaching and training around this new payment model. We're also working on uh, the plan for the move to San Leandro. So there's been a great deal of work that's happening with the ARU team, with the San Leandro team, human resources, all of the ancillary services, uh, meeting uh, bi-weekly and moving to weekly here soon um, as we prepare for the move. Um, for our outpatient therapy, um, this has been on our tracking for uh, going on two years, and we've seen some dramatic improvements in this area as well. As you remember, we started with a 103-day wait list, uh, our average time uh, to wait to get into the outpatient therapy program. We've been able to reduce that um, in January to 45.5 days. Uh, so a dramatic decrease, and we've also been able to improve the overall wait list um, by 57.1. It's not exactly where we want it to be still, but it's certainly ahead of what we had planned and budgeted for, so great improvements in that area. We've also did a, a restructure and a realignment of rehab throughout the system. So we used to have a manager of OT, a manager of speech, a manager of PT, and we consolidated to have one manager over all disciplines, which gives more continuity of care, more collaboration, um, and a better focus on how we're treating our patients um, as therapy, as a unit, as opposed to individual disciplines. Um, we've also, in, in light of throughput as well, we have our uh, rehab team working on in the acute settings, coming down to see patients on day one or day two, coming down earlier so we can see where do we think the right placement will be when they're prepared to be discharged. This used to be done later in the process, and so as we're all focusing on movement, um, we're trying to identify that much earlier in the process, which uh, has been helping. Again, our SNFs have been running, uh, this is 96, but since then we've identified it was 97% uh, for, and so we, we're, one of the uh, committees that we're working on is the Post-Acute Throughput Committee. We're engaging with our um, external partners and looking at how can we um, access and collaborate with our SNFs, subacutes, boarding carers, shelters in the community so that we can help place patients uh, not only within our system because we are tight, uh, but really working with the community with these residents and how can we better collaborate, having uh, monthly meetings and looking at quality measures to make sure that we're working with partners that have uh, very strong quality outcomes. 
uh, under quality, there's two things that I'm incredibly proud of. One is uh, in November of 2018, all of the post-acute uh, SNFs in subacute units were recognized by U.S. News and World Reports as being best nursing homes. Um, we were in the top 139 of 1199 in California, and we were identified as being in the top 2,900 out of 15,000 facilities across the nation. So, incredible work in the um, they had worked incredibly hard to do that. And as of yesterday, we are proud to say that CMS announced that all of our facilities, skilled nursing and subacutes, are all five-star rated with five-star quality outcomes and quality measures, which is important um, because the quality measures also tie into the new payment model that's changing for the SNFs okay. in October from RUGS-based to PDPM, which is patient-driven payment models, which looks at quality measures, and it also drives our uh, SNF value-based purchasing. Uh, so being uh, five stars in quality measures is incredibly important because it has some revenue uh, implications and it indicates that our patients are getting much better. Our biggest impact that um, we're really proud of is that the Alameda sites have been five stars for going on two years straight with five star quality measures, but Fairmont has had a lot of change this year. Yeah. And for them to move, uh, from what they had as three stars to five stars means that they've implemented new processes and new interventions to make sure that our patients are getting the best care possible um, as compared to state and federal averages. We are above that, and so great work from that team. Um, there are continued measures that we are working on. Um, one is rehospitalization rates. Um, that is our big uh, value-based purchasing metric that is looked at from CMS. And we are uh, slightly higher than the state average. We did get below the state average, but there have been a lot of changes in our SNFs, and so I think some of the focus has shifted slightly. And so we're re-implementing the Stop and Watch program, and I've given us a sample of what that looks like. And just very quickly, CNAs are not allowed to assess patients, but they can certainly observe a patient. And so what we're asking is as they're working with residents to identify any slight changes that they're noticing, that they're, they ate less, that they spoke less, um, so that we can say maybe there is some kind of change that's happening clinically. They tell the nurse, and the nurse can do interventions much sooner in order to try to prevent the transfers back to the hospital for rehospitalization or to the ER. Both of those are uh, closely monitored as quality measures and both in for all the SNFs areas that we can improve upon. Uh, and then the last is really looking at um, moderate to severe pain. Um, we do have a lot of residents who are drug-seeking um, behaviors, and so we have a fine balance of making sure we're addressing the pain, but we're also working with our physicians to make sure that we're weaning or looking at other uh, non-pharmacological interventions to make sure that we're addressing those uh, issues. In terms of patient experience, we had a very high score from our ARU. We're at 91.4% on an 85% goal, so they've done very well in the acute rehab. And in our skilled nursing facilities, um, the national peer score is 76, and so four of our facilities are at or above that. Um, our Fairmont uh, team is working on that. Um, the, again, there's been a lot of change. There's a lot of um, work to be done around meaningless of activities and quality of meals, and uh, the teams are certainly are addressing that. If you look at the dashboard, unfortunately, they're all in red. 
But they enrolled because the national peer score was 76, and our teens on the last survey were well above that. They were at 90, 79. And so we wanted to push ourselves to be even better. So we pushed to see if we can gain by 1% at all locations. And unfortunately, we had a dip. And so although there was a dip, we're still at three of the sites over national peer averages. So it's kind of a post-acute and equipment show. I'll take any questions if there are any. Thank you very much for that report, Richard. Trustees? Richard, last year or was it earlier this year? I mean, no, it was last fall when the changes in Fairmont were happening with the, the system integration and all of that, the care process. We heard a lot about that from the staff, so it's good to see it's gone you know, in terms of outcomes from three to five stars. How, how is the staff engagement now and the change process gone for them? So we are still heavily involved in, in working on staff engagement and appreciation. It's been a great deal of change that has happened. And so from an operational standpoint, it's proving to be beneficial for our patients. We still want to work with our staff in making sure that we're, we're engaging, we're celebrating, we're honoring. So we're, we're, we have a party set up for next week in terms of the five stars, the five star um, for uh, quality measures, and so we're trying to engage in the staff so that we can try to rebuild that connection. We have seen the um, the rebuild went into effect in January, mm -hmm. and there was almost. Oh, okay. Uh, so it went into effect in February, or January rather, and we were able to see an almost 50% financial <coughs> reduction. And so it proved to be the right thing for the organization, but we really want to focus on our staff. And so we continue to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Trustees? Any further questions? Just congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. Hard work paid off. Paying off. Uh, Richard, I'll ask, per my standard, please rank order your top concerns as the administrator for post So I was sharing with my colleague earlier, how do I rank when I have like five top ones? <laughs> um, it's, it, this is going to be a very tough year for post-acute in the sense that we have Epic, which is a big one. We have three of those facilities moving from paper no computers. Um, Does that mean you're calling the Epic transition number one for you? I would say that is okay. my number one. So just doing education around computer, the basics, computer use, as um, Mike was talking about. Um, the acute rehab move, which will happen uh, not too shortly thereafter. Um, and then the changes with um, CMS reimbursement, which is happening in October. So we have training that needs to happen to the ARU teams and the SNF teams. Um, and then lastly, we have six surveys that will happen between May and October while we're doing training for EPIC, while we're doing training for the new reimbursement processes. Um, and, uh, and it's a lot. So it will be a very busy time. It is a lot. Uh, and my follow-up question is always, do you feel resourced to navigate these concerns? I do. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your Thank report. You, Thank you. For both of you, wonderful reports. I appreciate the narrative write-up. It really, really helps give context to, to the dashboard. With that, we close item G. Uh, sorry, item F. We move into item G. Uh, the provider wellness as a quality metric. Dr. Hearn, our former, our immediate past chief of staff, and uh, 
has some passion around this project, as, as this board knows for the past couple of years. Uh, a lot of slides, Dr. Hearn, were included within the packet. Uh, we, we've been, uh, we, we've allocated 15 minutes for this, again, trying to be mindful of more dialogues than presentation. So if you can help us navigate, we're, we're running a little bit of a time check, but please use your time. It was allocated to you. Absolutely. Um, so the, the slides that landed were actually from a, a, another handout. I'd, I'll just do this free form, and I'll do it in basically six slides or less. Um, but I'm not going to use this, the, the, the slide for There were a lot of slides. It was from another presentation that I had heard, and somehow that got uh, that got mixed up in five. So let's talk about burnout as a, as a quality metric. What's really important is that as a board of trustees, you should care, partly because you need to be aware that the current studies show that about 50% of your medical staff uh, are burned out. And perhaps more importantly, that means a number of different things from a quality and a patient safety standpoint. It means that those providers are more likely to quit. Uh, the cost of a replacement is two to three times the physician's salary for that year. So for instance, uh, it's a think of overtime, backfill, recruitment, uh, and, the, and the lost patient uh, patients being seen. So uh, two to three times a physician's salary for a loss of a physician who is, or a provider who is burned out. They're also more prone to alcohol abuse and dependence. Um, as I mentioned before, providers who are burned out are more likely to commit suicide, much higher than the greater population. Uh, male physicians are 40% higher than the general population to commit suicide. Female providers are 130% higher than the national average for committing suicide. Truly shocking. Um, in addition, there are more mistakes in malpractice. Um, you know, this committee is all about quality indicators. It's very clear uh, that more mistakes happen uh, when your providers are burned out. Um, in addition, there is more unprofessional conduct. There are more behavioral investigations. Um, in addition, Providers who are burned out tend to one of the one of the classic burnout inventories the the MBI the Maslach uh, uh, the, the MBI inventory uses depersonalization um, as a as one of those markers. So depersonalization leads to poor patient satisfaction, decreased star scores, decreased Prescati scores, decreased satisfaction overall. So it is clearly uh, indicators that, that you get reported on on a monthly basis. Clearly burnout has a factor in those as well. In addition, there's also poor patient compliance and satisfaction when their providers are burned out, short, terse, in a bad mood, grumpy, not sleeping well. It is unlikely for, for patients to have good health outcomes in those settings. In addition, uh, the rates of medication errors amongst depressed and burnout residents. Uh, one study um, showed that depressed residents make six times the number of medication errors. When we talk about quality, we talk about medication errors. We talk about other errors. Uh, six times the number of medication errors in depressed residents. Um, amongst surgeons, this is a study uh, done through uh, the ACS, uh, burnout and medical errors amongst me American surgeons. Major surgical errors are strongly related to the health. Isn't that clear for the self. Surgical errors are strongly related to the degree of provider burnout. In addition, 
uh, association of resident fatigue and distress with perceived medical errors. There's an increased fatigue and distress correlated with higher rates of errors. Those are the things that we care about. This is That's what this committee is all about, decreasing errors, decreasing uh, both surgical errors, uh, prescribing errors as well. Um, in addition, the workforce, which is one of our pillars, right? Workforce is a pillar. Uh, the workforce, actually, you will see in burned-out providers a reduced work effort. That was from a Mayo study. Um, back to suicides, 400 suicides a year nationwide. That is roughly the equivalent of two medical school classes per year commit suicide um, and are no longer there for their families, there for their patients. But since this is a quality discussion, it is, uh, it is beyond the other issues. But in terms of taking care of your patients and your patient population, those physicians are no longer able to take care of the patients, but also think of the effect it has on the institution as a whole. Tremendous changes uh, in that. In addition, uh, burnout physicians take early retirement 47% of the time. In terms of uh, the percentage, uh, the most recent data suggests anywhere from 53 to 37% uh, are burned out. 53, the top five, critical care, emergency medicine, family medicine, internal medicine, general surgery. Huge departments in this, in this hospital. The lowest burnout, uh, dermatology, mental health, interesting, pathology, gastroenterology, well done, doctor. Um, uh, and those are in the 38 to 40% range. But still, 40% of, of, of those specialties are considered burnout. Depersonalization uh, as one of those many manifestations. Burnout versus stress is basically the question is, if you can recover uh, in, t in your time off. If you can't recover during your time off, you are more, more likely to, to be truly burned out rather than just sort of stressed. Leads to exhaustion, depersonalization, and devaluation of patients. Burned out physicians also have significantly worse health. Um, and what's interesting is that there's a, there's a strong business case for investing in physician well-being. If you think about the numbers, and they, so this is Tate Chenfeld, who's the, the chief wellness officer at Stanford, uh, was at Mayo, at Mayo Clinic, and he's probably the leading thinker on physician and provider burnout. And he said, basically, think about the number of turnout, uh, the turnover that you have at, at your institution, and you can he provide some numbers. Um, so for our institution, with 800 medical staff members, uh, say, for instance, we lose 20 providers a year, that's the national average, Due to, burn, due to burnout, that is roughly $10 million that this institution is then losing mm -hmm. to physicians and providers who have stopped. Uh, they've retired early, they take poor care of their patients, or they're just unproductive. So if you think about, when they do a return on investment calculation, this was in JAMA in 2017, return on investment calculation at least 12.5% um, by basically decreasing the amount of physician burnout and recruitment efforts that need to go in to a, to a provider well-being uh, process. So I think it's incredibly important um, and something that is, uh, is, we don't talk enough about the, the quality indicators that burnout provides. We talk about burnout a lot, I talk about it a lot, um, but we don't spend enough time talking about the actual bottom line characteristics that change our patients uh, and our patients' health, and that's why we're, we're here in this meeting. Um, there are a lot of personal strategies to prevent burnout, self-awareness, work-life balance, exercise, that sort of thing. Um, but they're organizational strategies, um, and they go beyond a physician wellness committee. CME on burnout, support groups, leadership skills. What's interesting is that um, Tate's, uh, uh, Tate's article talks about sort of five different categories, from the novice to the expert institution. Those are institutional responses to burnout. 
Um, in the novice category, they basically gave five different criteria. We are in that category. Awareness of the issue, a wellness committee, some individual focused interventions, some mindfulness training, and resources for exercise and nutrition. That is the novice level. We barely make that. The expert level uh, as an institution, these are system level, level things, a physician well-being, uh, one of the things is physician well-being influences key operational decisions. <coughs> Shared accountability for well-being amongst organizational leaders. Accountability for well-being from the organizational leaders. Chief well-being officer on the executive leadership team. Endowed program in physician well-being creating new knowledge that guides other organizations locally. Strategic investment to promote physician well-being and a culture of wellness. And I think those are all tremendous things that we can strive for. We are clearly at the novice stage at this moment. We had a wellness task force meeting today with six people at it. We're still in the process of discussing with the foundation the possibility of having the foundation fund a wellness program for all of our providers at, this, at, at, at the entire system level. Um, but we have made strides in the last couple of years. I'm very proud of that, very excited that, that, our, that our provider counselor is being used on a regular basis. Um, but I think we have a lot of room to go. That's all I have to say, and I'm sorry that the wrong, uh, the wrong uh, presentation got into your slide packet, and I didn't mean to, 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 to waste your electrons. Ron, can we make sure that we, those can be uploaded at the, the amended document? The new one. Yeah, I'll send you the new one. Sorry. Uh, Dr. Hearn, uh, as always, your passion and mastery of the subject is something to behold, so thank you. So, uh, trustees, questions? Has the, uh, you know, you've been a champion for this for, uh, for a long time in driving this process, and like you said, it's still at the novice to, to get that, to get to a culture of wellness, or to get the institutional um, um, responsibility of doing that, like what, what other things, I know that you're speaking to the foundation, but what kind of leadership input would you need to get to that next stage from the novice to the next one? Well, we've actually, I mean, Dr. Jamaladi and, and I have, have walked through a potential wellness uh, program space. Um, there is a, there's a reading room on the ninth floor of our acute care tower, which every single time I've been in there, has zero family members in it. No patients, no family members. I occasionally see a staff member who might be eating their lunch there, which is awesome. Uh, but it's on the ninth floor. There's a, there are other rooms that can substitute as a family waiting room uh, on that floor that are that are that are close by. Um, but it's we've actually talked about using that space. So Dr. Jamaladi and I have, have actually started those conversations. So once we get a business, part of it is the challenges of coming up with a business plan and a long-term vision for that. I'm I'm I'm. I'm not one that creates business plans. I'm not a budget guy. Just ask my spouse. You should uh, have to. <laughs> but, but, but part of that is the challenge is that like like the, the the people on the wellness committee are the ones who literally like have to call the room schedulers to make sure that that this room is open every third month, um, and it, it's usually booked. And we so we negotiate with medicine to get two of the rooms, and then one of the rooms is with somebody else, and so I have to call them and say, hey, would you mind switching over into D and E so we can have the whole thing for a wellness program to make our providers, you know, uh, have decreased burnout. The next one is actually coming up on the 13th of March. It's about your experience and your patient's experience and the EHR and that and how that affects your wellness and how that affects uh, the, the provider well-being. And I think it's a really fascinating topic and it's going to be live streamed and it's gonna, you can log on and you can access it later and that's all super cool. But the fact is, is that we are the ones, I literally have to email people to 
try to convince them to get room space. Mm. Um, I'd rather see patients, but whatever. Uh, anyway, so it's just it's fascinating that it's it's it would be nice to have more institutional support. Um, you know, I think the long-term vision. You know, right now, Lisa, our, our wellness counselor, is and stop me if if, you're, if we don't have enough time. Lisa is a half-time FTE that is cobbled together with medical staff money from all three of our of our medical staffs. Uh, some money from Dr. Gordon's budget, some money from a little money from GME, some money from AHP. It's literally like we had to, we had to do, like like many hands made like made like work, make like work. But it's a challenge that that budget we had to create on our own. Um, and I would love to have it as a more institutional process so that we can create a wellness space for all providers, not just physicians. Right right now, it's basically the medical staff. Uh, level, so PAs, NPs, and, and, and medical staff providers. But it makes sense to go to use for all medical providers, nurses as well. I mean, that's all the whole point is like we're a big tent of wellness, um, but yet that institutional process uh, isn't isn't quite there yet. You know, part of it it's time, part of it's budgetary, and I understand all of that. Um, but I think that it is an ongoing process that we need a little push now and then. And I think Dr. Jamaluddin, going with the just culture, this whole culture of wellness just fits in so well with that too. Like it's mental things, so advocating with uh, the leadership and as we like think through big, big changes, epic and all of that, and maintaining our uh, financial margins too, but kind of really keeping this on the ta on the radar constantly. So I think this. I have one other thing to add, and I'm sorry that I forgot that Tanvir has been super helpful. The quality department has now partnered with Lisa Rosequist for the um, second victim program through Beta Heart. Um, so that is going to be another process and another program that's going to help support providers when mistakes are made, when there are critical interventions, and uh, Tanvir has been super helpful for that. So that's a great example of a cross-disciplinary approach, and I have to thank you very much. Thank person. you. Dr. Jack. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your advocacy and partnership on this on this very topic. Uh, and thank you, Trustee Bouquet, for the article. Uh, I, I just want to have uh, just a few comments about this topic. Uh, you know, when uh, we brought in Lisa Rasquist, uh, I, I, I know Lisa very well, and uh, I feel it is therapeutic for me to sit down and talk to her and listen to her. And she has been very, very effective. However, from my perspective, uh, this is more of a like, therapeutic approach, and uh, we really need to look at it also from a preventive approach. And uh, there are lots of, there's a great deal of literature about that, the perks and about having this, but uh, physicians and nurses. Uh, and I talk from my perspective. I started career, you know, and I had the opportunity to work in tents with a stethoscope and a piece of paper, and sometimes not even a piece of paper, and uh, work for long hours under a lot of stress, and we never talked about burnout. What's happening right now in America is really the wall that we build between us as physicians and our patients. So when I have to work on an electronic health records that I don't know how to use, or when it stops working, I don't know what to do, that produces burnout. When, uh, when my patients need something that I cannot provide because of authorization or because of uh, hurdles, and, uh, and I get worried about my patient, that's what's produced burnout. 
uh, I, I remember also one time I, I, uh, in New York City, not long ago, I spent uh, on my own, I spent like uh, two nights not sleeping in the hospital trying to care for a patient who, uh, who survived and then uh, the family sued me. Uh, not sued me personally, but sued the hospital on the case, and I was named in that lawsuit. And then it was clear, but, uh, and I never blame the patient, by the way, but I blame the system that allows this to happen. So all of these issues, we really have to think about it in healthcare, how we are going to uh, make bridges between us and our patients and make our work more, uh, more, more enjoyable. So, uh, so there is a great deal to talk about this, and I really appreciate uh, the energy and, uh, and the engagement. Uh, lastly, uh, I, I'd like to highlight a point that uh, you know, I know that uh, medical staff and, and Jean and everyone is, is really the partnership with administration and the teamwork. The teamwork at, uh, at all levels, whether it's nursing, whether it's operation, whether with, uh, uh, with everybody, with EDS. I mean, uh, you know, our, our chair of, of ED is looking at the throughput when the EDS do not come to, to, uh, to uh, prepare the bed. When the bed is ready, you cannot see patients in it. So all of these issues are really uh, extremely important, and they need really a partnership. So that's, that's the last comment I want to say. Thank you, Dr. J. Uh, thank you for that report. Um, uh, Dr. Hearn, uh, as with every report, can you rank order your top concerns vis-a-vis -vis this topic? Uh, I'd say structure, um, support, and engagement. Structure, support, and engagement in that order? It's not fixed. Not yeah, for now. I mean, I think that's that's a big it's a big question. You know, it was just announced that the culture of engagement survey just was was is is out now. Yeah. Uh, we traditionally have a very low rate of a physician response, and of the physicians who do response, our it, our scores are incredibly low. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's very telling. Um, do you feel resourced to navigate those top three concerns? I wouldn't. That. Probably not at this point. Okay. Um, I think, again, if it's... So perhaps it's at a future report, maybe get a little bit of granular on what, what could be asked for. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. With that, we will close out item G. We're running on a time crunch. We're probably going to go about plus four minutes here. Here, So in this, we will go into item H. This is the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs Report. Um, this begins on page... Anyone? Fly. 158. This begins on page 158. I'll make note that some discussion was had on this in closed session, and uh, this patient safety uh, uh, and regulatory affairs report always includes a, 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 a root cause analysis report executed by our quality team. And there was some discussion about that, and I want to kind of make light of that to get this into the record, is that in calendar 18 from April 24th to December 31st, there were 24 root cause analysis uh, investigations by our quality team. Um, if you derive them by location, 11 of those occurred at John George, one occurred at Fairmont, 10 at Highland, one at Alameda, and one at San Leandro Hospital. Further superimposing on this uh, is, is a new concept we're talking about. This actually comes from the National Quality Council. And uh, it, it is called the Never Happen Events. These were published in the early 2000s. There are about 29 of them over seven categories. 
it's, it's notable that we had 11 never happen events in calendar 2018 in our system. And, and I want uh, the public and I want this committee to know that, that this organization is committed to navigating uh, these concerns because they are concerning. Um, uh, I think we need to give, to laud our quality department for, the, for, for unroofing what has probably existed for some time. So I, I don't want our quality committee to feel like they're being beat upon because they are actually doing remarkable work in identifying the work that needs to be done in my opinion. But, but we, need to, we need to be vigilant and uh, redouble our efforts with this because a never happen event is a never happen event. In the quality report for this month, there's also another new never happen event uh, at, at John George. Robust discussion was ha occurred in closed session and uh, I, 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 I will speak for myself and perhaps for the board. I think that we have confidence that, that the attention is gotten by our quality committee and all our, our administrators towards, towards the execution of high quality care. Uh, that will be my, those my words, those will be my words for this. Trustees, any further comments on uh, item H, patient safety and regulatory affairs? My only comment is um, to appreciate the, some feedback that we got earlier, that is that the reporting is also contributing to the numbers. So yes, absolutely. Which is important. It is very important to know. Uh, the, the, it, it provides the context. Um, uh, it, it's how we view the data. Because the, the number, the percentages on the reportings are going 20 to 40 percent over last year. Tanvir, roughly. I don't have the data off the top of my head, but that this is a, actually a good thing. It's it, it, it's a painful thing to see, but it's a good thing for us to 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 be honest and vulnerable about where our opportunities are. So with that, um, I will close out item H. Next is item I. It's our, our, it's our standing written report. It's our True North metric dashboard review. So for just to remind everyone, this committee uh, approved in uh, July of last year 13 True North metrics which will apl apply to the, the work of this committee, the quality committee. That is included in your packet on page 169. Uh, Dr. Hussein, as always, wrote a wonderful narrative of this. Uh, 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 there is a lot of red on our report. There's a lot of red on our report. We'll continue to follow uh, uh, this closely. And, and again, uh, as Drucker said, if you're not measuring it, you're not managing it. So we're measuring it, and now we're observing it. And, and I think uh, this, this, is, this is a good thing for our organization. Trustees, any further comments on item I? You noticed that the ambulatory was one minute above, so yeah. <laughs> thank you for all that detail, even before you get to the dashboard, but just understanding, you know, the specialty is doing well, which is really good to hear. So with that, thank you very much for that comment. We will close out item I, gaining our time back, gaining some time back. We'll go to item J. <laughs> I hate being late, is the, is the, is the uh, planning uh, and calendar item. This is item uh, J, page 172 of the packet. We try to be prospective in what we have. Next month will be uh, our acute report, our acute SBU report. We, the, the, I believe it was Trustee, Tra Trustee Jensen who wanted to hear about the transfer center uh, in a previous meeting. I think it's a nice marriage of transfer center and the acute report. So, uh, uh, Mr. Fonseca, if you'll talk to your people about preparing a transfer center report uh, for us to, to marry along with the acute report and Dr. Tornavini as well. 
and that, that would be very helpful. Projecting into April, um, uh, we are looking to have a report from translation services uh, that will hopefully marry up with our ambulatory SBU. And, and also, uh, Dr. Hussein, as we're moving into June, uh, May, June, July, I, I'd like to actually reserve a few minutes if you can start making some projections, because remember, uh, board, in July we need to vote on the next set of True North metrics for calendar 1920. Uh, uh, so, so if you'll start, maybe just a five-minute report, because you'll see that I have that for some <coughs> subsequent, uh, subs subsequent months. So uh, with that, uh, trustees, any further questions on the uh, tracking uh, and calendar re report? No, no. <laughs> I, so I could just, no, I just want to thank you, because I think it's good to, when there are, if we can marry the issues or combine the issues of, into the SBU, that, that is helpful, and we can always continue to look at that, that particular issue of, of concern thank you very much again I encourage the trustees if there are reports that they would want consideration you can you can always flow down and this is the right moment to discuss that we can do that with that we will close item J and we will end with item K legal counsel report on action taken in closed session yeah, the uh, board met in closed session consider the credential reports from each of the three medical staffs approve those proposed for credentials who met the uh, relevant qualifications and we took no other action. With that, we are at plus two minutes and 55 seconds, so thank you very much for everybody. We close QPSC 220.